You're listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, a weekly show with Alexander Schacht, myself, and Benjamin Pieske, designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science, and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today we will talk again about estimates, but not in the clinical trial setting, but more in observational studies. And for this, I'm really happy to have Artemis Kukunari on the show with whom I will talk about this. So stay tuned for this really insightful episode, even if you're not working on observational data. Understanding estimates is really, really important in the clinical trial space as well as in the observational space. And if you want to understand it as well as communicate it, implement it effectively and potentially even driving change in this area, then I have some good news for you. We have the Effective Statistician Estimates course. And this course is not just by myself, no, it's together with Kaspar Hofibach, who has done a lot on this topic across the industry, as well as in his company at Roche, uh, where he successfully implemented lots of lots of these different things. So check out the Effective Statistician Esteban course, where you can learn a lot about this topic. By the way, the first couple of videos on it are free, so you can just sign up for these, have a look into these, and if you like it, then you can look into whether it's a good investment for you, both from money as well as from a time perspective. I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars, and much, much more. Head over to the PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. Welcome to another episode of the Effective Statistician. Today, I'm really excited to talk with another listener of this podcast and someone that also has a lot of knowledge in an area that I have worked a lot in. Welcome, Artemis. How are you doing? I'm really good. Hi, Alexander. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Very good. And today we are talking about two topics that come together here, real-world evidence or observational research on one hand, which is a pretty hot topic for many years, but it's only growing hotter over the last years. And the other is estimates. I think the estimates topic, of course, came from uh, the clinical trial area, but it's you know, it's similar important, or maybe even more important in the observational area. And what I really love about the Esteban framework is that it kind of 
pulls a lot of methods, approaches, problems that have been tackled in observational research for many, many years into the clinical trial area. And so I love that, you know, here we are connecting the dots in a much better way. Before we go into the content part, Artemis, please introduce yourself. Thank you. Thank you very much, Alexander. I have most of my experiences uh, with uh, observational research. I have uh, studied, uh, have a BSc and an MSc in statistics, and then I did a PhD in statistical epidemiology. And the last three years, I have transitioned to the pharma industry from academia. And now I work as an associate director in real world evidence with Novartis. So it's my great pleasure to be here with you and talk about this topic, very important topic. Awesome. So let's dive into where we're coming from. Yeah. So in terms of observational studies, what is your experience around the history of S-demand type questions we have there, both in prospective and in retrospective observational studies? Yep. In uh, retrospective uh, secondary uh, data use, I have been involved in teams looking at uh, comparative effectiveness, uh, also on hybrid controls where you have actually early phase trials where the sample sizes are really small and you try to enhance the existing control with historical data, either from uh, trials or real-world data. So over there, again, the target of inference becomes very important. Uh, who do you want uh, to estimate the treatment effect for the overall population, for just the treated, and, and so on. In terms of prospective studies, currently I'm part of a team that uh, tries to set up multi country primary data collection, where again, the main aim is uh, comparative effectiveness. However, the fact that it is from multi-country sites creates a lot of issues with the inherent assumptions of uh, propensity score methods, like for instance, the consistency assumption, uh, where you must have clear treatments becomes a nightmare of uh, having the same standard of care in all the countries involved. The positivity assumption is uh, under doubt uh, because there are different access issues. So do all the patients have the same probability of getting the treatment under question? And then, you know, the main assumption of exchangeability and measured confounding, can we take into account the um, confounders that are needed uh, in order to implement these propensity score methods to achieve balance between the treatment groups and be able to infer causal treatment effects? But in all these experiences, I feel that we are not driven by we first define this demand And then we couple the methods associated with it or we, what are our stakeholders want? What, what is the research question that they impose that we compare it with the estimate? So I think as in the world of, of, of trials, we really ought to become more, more serious about defining first the estimate as an iterative process and then looking at what methods can back up the target of uh, of inference. And also in 
in terms of retrospective studies, another another experience that I had was trying to extrapolate the findings of a trial to a target uh, population with uh, real-world data. So over there, the estimate was the targeted average treatment effect. And there, there are issues, how are the covariates that uh, you are looking from the trial to the real world uh, measured, are they measured in the same way, do you miss uh, uh, some, are the effects uh, <laughs> the same, so yeah. Yeah, uh, that is, there's a lot of other topics, yeah, I am just thinking back in terms of my early time in observational research, yeah, where we also did comparative observational studies and I'm just thinking about a particular one that I worked on about 20 years ago a really big schizophrenia operational study with many different treatments and at the start it was pretty easy we looked into three months follow-up data and well in the first three months after starting therapy nothing changed a lot yeah, so it was pretty easy. Well, we look into the data yeah, as pa- based on the treatment policy, more or less. Yeah, what you start with, we analyzed it accordingly. Yeah, but then, of course, the first problem was okay, in an observation setting, you don't have a randomization, and so you do the propensity scoring approach to compare apples to apples. Yeah, similar patients. And thinking back, I, you know, we had then these different propensities categories. Yeah, having the reference treatment probability of 0 to 20%, 20 to 30%, and so on. Thinking back, we, you know, we just pulled across these. Yeah, that's it. But we never really thought about, okay, does pooling actually make sense? Yeah. Is there treatment by propensity score interaction? And if there is, well, that is pretty interesting, yeah? Because then, of course, the treatment effect depends on your propensity score. Now, the propensity score is not, not something that, you know, you can give to patients easily, yeah? So, so you can't say, well can't look just into their data and say, hey, you have propensity score of that, and therefore your treatment effect will be this. It's a calculated score. Yeah. So that comes with completely different topics than with the typical things in clinical trials, Yeah, where you have randomized comparisons. Unless, of course, you also do propensity scoring there. You get into the same problem. Yeah. The other thing that I found really interesting that I learned from observational studies was this kind of survival bias. Yeah. So in the end, this observational study expanded not just for three months, but for three years. And already after one year, if we compared the patients that started on a medication and that were still on the same medication at one year, they were all the same. Yeah, there was no treatment effect whatsoever anymore. Yes. And then the physician said, well, that's pretty clear because if you haven't responded, yeah, and you're not working well, then you will switch. So more or less, 
because of the standard of care of the practice, by design, you don't see any differences. That's the kind of on-treatment estimate after one year. And this kind of thing was pretty useless because everybody would be Yes. And so, yeah, that, that showed that, you know, this kind of problem about different estimates and, yeah, only more than 15 years later, this kind of thing emerged around the estimates. So how do you see it? Uh, you mentioned one thing that is the positivity assumption. Can you speak a little bit more to what this is and why that might be a challenge? Well, the propensity score methods have, you know, nothing comes uh, for free. It's a very nice uh, method of trying to tackle confounding and, and at measured confounding, uh, whatever you you measure and achieve balance of those confounders among the uh, treatment arms, but it comes with uh, assumptions. The main assumption is, uh, one of the main assumptions is, is the exchangeability, measured uh, confounding and conditional dependence of these covariates on the of, uh, treatment. Then there is the positivity assumption. Every patient needs to have probability of receiving the treatment uh, that uh, you are um, studying, not uh, having any, you know, not being excluded uh, from the treatment from some contraindication or, or uh, something. Um, and then there is, as I said, the, the consistency assumption, which in my case, as I have seen it now in practice, becomes a nightmare in a multi-country <laughs> study, like how clear your your the definition of your treatments are and your treatment strategy and so on. So what I'm trying to say is that if any of these assumptions by reality, by the real world, by the practice gets violated, your propensity score methods will be problematic and you will have biased results. But the statisticians, we still have hope in the sense that we can use diagnostics to detect whether, you know, some of these assumptions might have been violated. And positivity, you can get some hints if you apply weighting propensity score methods by extreme weights, by some specific uh, graphs. And there, you know, that gives you alerts of perhaps trying to apply some trimming or truncating, but then you have to be careful what does that make make to your estimate? <laughs> what are you left with? How many, you know, patients you chopped out because they, they might have, you know, done something to your positivity assumption? I think positivity assumption is, sounds kind of easy, yeah, well, mm -hmm. but it's actually not. I've seen, for example, in an oncology study where certain patients had contraindications to treatments. Yeah? Exactly. And of course, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to compare, to, to include these patients in your comparison because they'll never get the other treatment. Yeah. Exactly. But it could also be what you mentioned in real life HDA things. Yeah. That Maybe all patients first need to step through one treatment and then go to the other treatment. Mm -hmm. yeah? 
-hmm. And then, of course, nobody that hasn't gone through the first treatment can get the second treatment. Yeah. Yeah. And so this kind of uh, understanding in the real world is really, really important. So checking on the data is important, but also understanding what are the local guidelines, what are the typical kind of problems, what are the standards of care is really, really important. And you don't have that in clinical trials because there you just tell how to treat patients. (laughs) You design the perfect experiment and you mandate everything through your protocol, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, the exchange, that is, if I understand it correctly, on the treatment side. Yeah, so basically that the, all the patients that you, well, in your database, say, get treatment X, all get the same treatment X, isn't it? The extensibility, as I understand it, is more about the measured, co- the, the, mm-hmm. the same treatment. I think it's about the con- consistency assumption. So... One thing that uh, often I see that we neglect is that, oh, we applied propensity score method. Yes, but on, on your measured, uh, what about, uh, you know, this? It, it's a fundamental uh, assumption. Uh, and this uh, year, if I'm not mistaken, there was from uh, Duke Markley some uh, initiative uh, together with the FDA on negative controls, on trying to uh, leverage epidemiological tools uh, in order to, you know, check, do I have a measure thing? And mm-hmm. to detect whether, you know, I applied the propensity score, is my inference robust and how sensitive it is to unmeasured confounding. And I, I found that fascinating. So uh, these tools are there for decades, but I personally have never heard about native controls, but I think there is an amazing opportunity on, you know, the wealth of real-world data to also investigate those negative controls in order to enhance all these inference about the propensity score methods. Because imagine you go to a health authority and you say, I applied propensity score methods. But on the top of that, I've also adopted negative controls to show you that, you know, my methods are robust or (laughs) they're not. (laughs) I think we owe that to be transparent and rigid in such evaluation when we try to infer causal treatment effects from such data. Completely agree. And the estimate framework really nicely kind of lays it out. Yeah. That basically you have the same estimate then, but you do sensitivity analysis here. Exactly. Because you check on your assumptions and you put in different assumptions. And then you can see how robust they are. You know, how much kind of unmeasured confounding do you need to have to basically invalidate the, uh, the results and come to something completely different from a conclusion point of view. And then you can think about, yeah, is that sensible or is that pretty unlikely to happen? Awesome. Very good. If you, if let's go through the ICH framework, yeah, step by step, we have the treatment, we have the population, we have the variable, we have population level summary and handling of intercurrent events. <laughs> So we already talked that treatment 
Mm-hmm. There's surely a difference between clinical trials and observational studies. Yeah. And that, you know, that could be varied between the different countries, things like this. What else could happen in observational research that usually doesn't happen in clinical trials in terms of managing treatment in the in the system framework? I think also the, if I may say, the treatment history or treatment and in a clinical trial, you know, you highly select the population, exclude the mm-hmm. specific, perhaps pre-treatment uh, history and, and stuff in the real world. No, although you can't go in secondary data and try to apply the same uh, eligibility, inclusion, exclusion criteria of, of trials. But then with treatment also, and that though, I think it overlaps, and I will talk about this more when we go into the intercurrent events, the, then you get, you know, all the issues of uh, adherence, compliance, switching treatment. But if you prefer, we can talk about that more when yeah. you ask me about the intercurrent. <laughs> yeah, and these kind of two things are closely related, especially in observational research. In, yes. I think in clinical trials, you usually have providing your protocol, what to do, what are kind of the different steps in terms of changing treatment. But in real life, lots of different things can happen. Yeah. Yes. So just the variety of different treatment patterns yeah, yes, it's much exactly. better, much bigger. And if you kind of uh, think about that, you want to do estimates based on these real treatment patterns. Yeah, and then you are for sure an observational setting in clinical trials. So, so you are no, you really have this kind of problem with propensity scoring and all these kind of different things. So that's what I mean by observational. Of course, it's still a clinical yeah. trial, but then you have these problems. Yeah. And clustering even kind of, you know, different treatment patterns together is a topic. Yeah. It's kind of, okay, for patients that don't know, let's say switch from treatment A to treatment B within a certain uh, time period. Yeah. Where maybe in a clinical trial, you only allow that at a certain time point Mm -hmm. or if a certain criteria is met. Yeah, all these different things are different in real life. And so it's just the define what treatment is when it's not just treatment policy is really, really much more difficult in clinical and observational research. In terms of the population, you also mentioned kind of pre-treatment is is surely one of the topics. It's kind of generally observational studies have much more heterogeneous patient population compared to clinical trials, usually. Where else do you see problems in terms of differences? Um, I've seen a very nice paper specifically on this topic, honest months, on trying to extend what we discussed on studies, keeping everything else steady, the current events, the treatment, all the four other attributes, just talking about the population. And it talks about that in the population element for observational studies, inherently you have also the covariates because uh, that's your fundamental thing in observational studies because of what we talked, the lack of randomization, this 
baseline covariage, you are trying to achieve the balance between the uh, treatment arms. And that in observational ants, which differs from clinical trials, uh, these average quantities that they are not equal, the average treatment effect, the average treatment effect among the treated, the average treatment effect among the untreated. In observational studies, these are not the same quantities. In uh, clinical trials, you wouldn't be worried uh, about uh, the inequality of this. Uh, then different propensity score methods, they, they are, cap- um, how to say, they are coupled with this. Uh, like pair matching can only give you average treatment effect among the treatment. Full matching can give you both. And some sometimes I, I've even seen when when you apply caliper on the on the propensity scores, you lose that <laughs> quantity of demand because you put that uh, value to achieve uh, uh, the balance. And some sometimes I've seen people going and, and comparing these methods, but you are not targeting the same. Uh, and also, they are those demands are coupled with different uh, research questions. So if a question concerns a treatment policy intended to apply to all qualifying patients, then your target population should be the whole indicated patient population and the estimate should be the average treatment effect. If the question concerns a policy of withholding a treatment among those currently receiving or not receiving it, the estimate should be the average treatment effect among the treated. Uh, or among the untreated. So, and then it's also what kind of data you have uh, at hand. If you have a product, uh, then you are confined only to the average treatment effect among the treated. So those elements, I think they are, you know, one can classify them under the population attributes of the ICH. And these are the fundamental differences to study. Let's go to the third one, the variable, yeah, the endpoint that we look into. So the first thing that comes to my mind is that very often we don't even observe you know, these, these highly specialized endpoints in clinical in observational research that we have in clinical trials, yeah, because you need a lot of specific interventions or you need ed- educated physicians that can actually collect these data and these kind of things. Or you may have, you know, a claims database <laughs> where you don't collect these kind of things at all. So that's the first thing that comes to my mind. What, what other things do you see are different between clinical trials and observational research? With respect to in, a, in endpoint, you mostly cover it. The, the choice of endpoint in observational research does not just depend only on the research question, but the, on the available real-world data sources. And within those, you need to understand how those measures or variables that they list, uh, they were derived, <laughs> you know, through records of the physicians, did they apply some uh, machine learning, uh, how, how did they extract uh, this data? 
And for instance, former colleagues in Ross, they, I've seen yesterday, they have a very nice website and even R code on calculating real world PFS, progression free survival, oh, okay. because that can vary by cancer indication, by treatment, by you, you name it. And so they, they have a very nice case where they, they've studied at end point between the clinical trial and between real world data, the flat iron which are amazing real-world data. And they found that for chemotherapy, the the survival was pretty much the the same, but for immunotherapy, it it was not. And there are so many things to want to consider over there, what you were talking about before, the time when, where, what sensitivity analysis you do. And they have a very nice guidelines of uh, how to go about with experts with what is already known so basically they they say that the mechanism of data collection differ between real world data and clinical trials and for instance in the in the case of the pfs progression free survival in clinical trials two more assessments are scheduled at regular intervals progression is assessed using standardized criteria but then in routine healthcare there is no protocol and no regularly scheduled tumor assessments and progression may or may not be assessed following standard criteria. And yeah, that this is why, for instance, we talk about real-world PFS and uh, clinical trial PFS, and, and they recommend more studies of trying to acquire more empirical evidence per cancer indication, per treatment, to make sure that, you know, let's say that you're interested in an external control of PFS, are your endpoints <laughs> similar? And then from, 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 from my previous experience, having worked a lot with on, on measurement error issues and patient reported uh, outcomes, there I can also see a, a lot of, of issues. Yes. Like, how did you collect the, the did you record the quality of life? Did you use the same questionnaire? And even if you use the same questionnaire, did that same questionnaire have the same number of questions? Because in some questionnaires you have short or long, long versions of, of, uh, of the scale. So if you look in different real world data sources, how do you pull (laughs) all all these? And, and, there are methods. One could look into harmonization of, of such uh, measures. But in my experience in three years in the industry, I haven't seen such <laughs> techniques, to be honest, to be implemented uh, or even discussed. There's one thing that you just mentioned that I think I've never seen, you know, more elaborated on is the, is the variability. Yeah, it's the variability of the, of the endpoint itself. Yeah, yes. that is kind of can be much more harmonized and structured in clinical trials because mm-hmm. of training and all these kind of different things. But the variability, you know, can be much bigger in observational studies. Yeah, mm-hmm. lack of training or because it's not exactly all at the same time point or because, you know, the patient population is different. There's so many different factors that can influence that the, you know, inherent variability within your endpoint, yeah, is very, very different. And therefore, of course, that has an impact on 
how likely it is that you'll see treatment differences and all these <laughs> kind of different things. Yeah. Also, if you think about any kind of standardized measures, standardized by uh, deviations, yeah, then of course that has an impact as well. By the way, probably the same is true for measurement errors in the covariates. That is yet yes. another completely different topic, yeah, yes. which could be different in clinical trials to observational data. There's one thing that, however, I think is really good about observational data is that in observational data, of course, you have also these endpoints that people will see in clinical practice. Yeah. So at least if you have some kind of, you know, medical data in it as well, yeah, not just the claims data, but you can see kind of patient reported outcomes there. You can see endpoints like how long do they stay on treatment if that is of interest in your indication. Yeah. It could mm -hmm. be for, especially for good working treatment. If patients stay on it, it yeah. works. If they don't, it doesn't for them. Yeah. Yeah. So these kind of things can be amazingly nice for clinical trial, for, for observational research, and maybe much harder to actually study in clinical trials because these are studies. Yeah? <laughs> the treatment is provided. It's not you know, coming through the reimbursement criteria and these kind of things. So there's no usually no copay by patients and all these kind of other things that happen in real life. And so there are some areas where clinical trials, of course, are definitely better. Yeah. But there's also some areas where observational research has its advantages with respect to, to variables. The next topic in terms of the ICH framework is the population level summary. Do you see any differences there between clinical trials and observational research? Okay. Yes, because yes, I do. In clinical trials, again, because of the uh, of the randomization, the results per statistical interpretation and simpler statistical methods might often be required to estimate the estimates. But in real-world data, we need causal methods often to account for issues with non-randomization. And we can only interpret causally the results if the causal assumptions hold. So I think th that per se creates what we were talking before. We have a duty to you know, verify the inherent assumptions of the causal methods that one might, might use. And then... And another thing, uh, very, very simple, just mathematical fact, the, the non-collapsibility might complicate many important areas in, in clinical trials when you have, you know, a logistic regression model or a Cox regression model, low, uh, odd ratios or, or hazard ratios. If you adjust for covariates in, in, uh, in clinical trials, the, there, are, there are issues uh, with the standard errors when different baseline covariate adjustment sets have been used. But if you do that, uh, in, uh, you, it's not only about the precision adjusting for covariates. Mm -hmm. It's also the problem of... Um, okay. So, and that comes in terms of estimate. Do I aim for a marginal estimate? or a conditional estimate, uh, right? Those are different things. With marginal estimates, we would have everything that we talked before, AT, ATT, 
ATU and so on. I'm not going to go over there. But if you are in the land of non-collapsible effects with those ratios and, and hazard ratios, it's not the same. I run a Cox regression model and I adjust for covariates or I run a weighted Cox regression model with the as weight as the propensity scores. Because the one is giving me conditional effects and the other is giving me well, effects. That <laughs> and, is and really, really good. Yeah, you talk about odds ratios or hazard ratios in both cases, but really it's different. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and I've seen many times, uh, I've studied unadjusted Cox regression model and then comparing that with the clinical trial. You know, you, you can't <laughs> because normally clinical trial gives you a marginal effect, let alone, you know, what population, what the inclusion, exclusion criteria. Let's not go there. But yeah. This is brilliant. Yeah, yeah. And lastly, of course, we have the different intercurrent events. And we talked already about lots of lots of different things there. What haven't we covered yet? <laughs> yes, I think uh, we haven't covered uh, that in uh, clinical trials, you would have uh, an optional research. You would have, uh, it would be the same in, for intercurrent events, the lack of efficacy or the safety. But then in the observational research are the... Um, personal factors, you, you know, the relationship that a patient has with his physician or a family member, I don't know, influenced me to get this treatment that you probably wouldn't have in a clinical trial, or at least in the clinical trial, perhaps in the protocol, you would have recorded it. And then also events related to non-behavioral factors, like change of health insurance program, relocation to another place where the current therapy is unavailable, development of new conditions that contradict the use of the current therapy, uh, participation in a clinical trial that requires discontinuation of the current therapy. A lot of additional things to have in mind when you write your intact event strategy. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much for going through all these kind of different things. And it is super helpful to understand what we can learn about the estimate framework from observational studies, from clinical trials, and how they actually get together. And it was really, really interesting to understand kind of how treatment, population variable, population level summary, and intercurrent events all differ for clinical trials to observational data. Where do you see the future of real-world data research going as a result of this estimate framework? I think as we discussed with real-world data, we, we have to take into account many additional considerations in relation to estimates. We also have to understand the stakeholders and their question of interest and then accordingly evaluate how fit for purpose the real-world data that we have at hand or we can find or we can seek are, coupled with all these issues, and definitely articulating each of the, these five attributes can help identify and define appropriate demands, and we should definitely not miss 
other frameworks that they're closely related to like the causal inference or the target trial framework. And yeah, basically to align the analytical methods with selected real-world evidence studies demands and definitely apply rigorous sensitivity analysis to ensure the robustness of the study findings. Thanks so much. That was an awesome outlook and, and summary for this podcast episode. Thanks for being on the show, Artemis. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alexander. It was a pleasure and honor to be here and discuss these things with you. If you want to learn more about Estimons, then check out the Effective Statistician Estimant course. You will find a link to this in the show notes. And you can also look for it on the EffectiveStatistician.com homepage. This show was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain and her team at VVS who helped with the show in the background. And thank you for listening. Reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.